Good morning and welcome to the Wisdom Seeker Sunday School class. My name is Tammy Stewart and I am the teacher for this Sunday. The name of my teaching is Key Names of God in Revelation. If you think about the word revelation, it is derived from Latin and apocalypse originated from Greek and they both signify the same thing and uncovering um, revelation is really a book about things revealed and there are 12 names of God in this last book the uh, author of this book is of course the Apostle John who was exiled to the island of Patmos where he'd been banished uh, he was kind of situated up on a rocky, barren piece of land about halfway up a hill in a cave, according to tradition, that's what they say. And that's where John received what is given in this book. I have uh, selected uh, from the 12 names of God listed in Revelation uh, to focus on five of them for our teaching today. They are the names Alpha and Omega, first and last. Sometimes it's referenced as beginning and ending. Uh, next, the Lion, the tribe of Judah. Then the Lamb, and, and this title is also extended as well to the phrase Lamb of God in some passages. And then uh, next would be King of Kings. And then finally, the bright morning star. And you'll see on the last page of my handout the other seven names of God that I put there for you. We'll talk about that a little later. Um, you know, Revelation was never really intended to be a scary book. Um, you know, it was really written to give people hope. It's about God, and it's about the revelation of Jesus. You know, the book of Genesis gives the creation story there in the beginning. And it's the first promise of the Savior. And then Revelation, at the close of the Bible, announces the end of the present order and sets forth the glory and the majesty of Christ's second coming. The first title of God and specifically to the anointed son Jesus who is the Alpha and the Omega occurs only three times in the Bible I didn't realize that the Alpha and the Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet Jesus was present at the world's beginning and he will also be present at its end when he and his work are finally uh, fully revealed you'll notice with this first name here I've got uh, a couple of references Revelation 21 6 and 22 13 these are other verses I could have used today in the teaching but as you can see from the handout it's already pretty big it's a large handout so I decided to try to cut it down wherever I could to make it a little shorter All right, let's look at this first verse. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is 
and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. The Lord Jesus is the first begotten or the firstborn from the dead. He is the prince of kings of the earth. By him, their power is limited. By their counsels, they're overruled, and they're only accountable to Jesus. You know, when we pray to Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, we are praying to the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He is our all-sufficient Lord, who will not fail to complete the good work he has begun in us. Let's go on to the next scripture. Um, let me kind of introduce this. Um, John heard a voice, uh, the voice of Christ, the first and last, commanding the apostle, apostle to commit to the writing of these things which are now revealed to him. And he sends it immediately to the seven Asian churches. So Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven uh, candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Okay, I'm going to just keep going. Um, we have uh, one reference in the Old Testament to this specific title of God found in Isaiah. Um, let's see. Um, let me read it first. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, the king Melech, which is king or royal of Israel, and his redeemer, Goel, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God, Elohim. And who, as I shall call, and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming, and shall come, let them show unto them, fear not, neither be afraid, have I not told you from that time, and have declared it? You are even my witnesses, recorders. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Okay, now what I want you to notice about this is God is represented here in the Old Testament in six unique ways. As Yahweh which is the ongoing plan and purpose of God, and then as the only king, as a redeemer, the Lord of hosts is a warrior of the angelic forces. He is also the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then finally, Elohim, which is the heart of God who loves us. So in this verse, we have six titles for God. Now, uh, this is not on your handout, uh, but I would like for you to kind of ponder this insight ahead and comment. Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, it's Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 31. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Um, this is Genesis 1.26 and also uh, verse 31, which I paraphrased. So we know the number six represents man, 
it also means image or form. So in verse 26, image and likeness mean the same thing. They are interchangeable. The word likeness, rather than diminishing the word image, actually amplifies it and specifies its meaning. So man is not just an image like an likeness image. He is not simply representative, but representational. Man is the visible representative of the invisible bodiless God. Do you remember the five I wills of Satan? Where he said he would be like the Most High God in Isaiah chapter 14. Um, the word like, referring to Satan, is the same word likeness in Genesis chapter 1. It is the word dhamma, meaning to uh, resemble. You know, God, through his prophet Isaiah, gave notice prophetically to the world 200 years before his words came to pass concerning not only the people's return from captivity, but also the coming of Jesus the Messiah, who is the first and last. You know, Satan wanted to be like God, and Jesus was the beginning and end to save man from the enemy's intentions to kill him and to kill us. You know, the Lord Jesus endured five wounds uh, from the crucifixion, both hands and feet and the piercing in his side. Um, he had multiple wounds and gashes and cuts and bruises, but I'm talking about the five specific wounds at the crucifixion. So what I find that is very interesting is I went back and actually looked at the five I wills of Satan in Isaiah 14. The first one was, I will ascend into heaven. You know, he was going to occupy the highest heavens. Next, I will exalt my throne above to the stars of God. Obviously, he wanted to rule over the angels. Uh, next, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. He wanted to be idolized by all. Um, fourth, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Um, you know, clouds um, can represent the glory of God. And then this last one, which I referenced, I will be like the Most High. So he wanted to be equal with God. So, you know, I just, I just didn't want to go too far with this. But I've been thinking about that. Um, you know, if we were to pray to the Alpha and Omega, the first and last, you know, we need to remember what Jesus has said. And we are to cherish his words um, and to really base our entire life, body, soul, and spirit, on what he has spoken in the word. You know, and if we do that, um, I didn't write this one down because I kind of went off on this little rabbit trail and I'll get back off here in a minute. But I went to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, and it's not on your handout. Uh, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tablets of the heart. Um, let me bring this to a close. Um, you know, our prayer here would be, Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything matters to you. Plant your word deep in my heart 
and bring it to life through the power of the Spirit. Make me an epistle to advance your message as I live out my life. Amen? Any thoughts or comments on this? All right. Let me just keep Mary, going. That, yes. Just, uh, that really is a, a phenomenal concept that we, we would be epistles, that we would be a living embodiment of the living word, that, that each of us would, would be that. And then subsequently, that the people that we have a responsibility for would also be, I want to say, fulfilling, but depicting. Just to say you're an epistle is really a stunning thing. And it's in the Word of God that's saying it, so it's not some commentator saying it about the Word. Um, it's a, that just is a very astounding concept. It is an astounding concept, and... Um, Sometimes I have difficulty kind of sorting it all out because I, I feel like I've got all these roads I could venture down. And so looking at your faces, I thought, you know, this is something I probably need to just uh, pray about and study a little more. But I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I was just going to add to that. That was, that was the thing that hit me. And... What hit me about it was like, you know, it was kind of like when I was teaching on Revelation, I mean, on Hebrews 12, and, you know, the Lord just brought a highlight of what my surrounding is when I pray, you know, company of angels, you know, the people who have come before us, all the things, it just, to me, it just lends such an importance to who we are, and not in our own selves, obviously, but what we represent. And I, when, I, when you said that, I was like, wow. You know, Stacy, reality check. <laughs> Remember who you are. Because that is, a, that's a description of us. Yeah. I mean, you're giving the names of God, but you just, you know, you really just you gave a name for us, who we are, and what we're supposed to represent. So it kind of brought a reality check to my spirit when you said that. Good, good. Appreciate that. All right, let's go on to our next title. And this is the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. You know, throughout the Bible, the lion, uh, he appears as a symbol of might. And, you know, it's not surprising that Israel's enemies were sometimes depicted as lions as well. Now, even though lions are sometimes a symbol of evil, um, they are also used as a symbol of God's people. Uh, near the end of his life, the patriarch Jacob, he prayed a blessing over his uh, 12 sons. And then when it came time to bless Judah, he compared him to a lion. So hence we got the phrase, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, just for a few minutes, let's, let's think about the characteristics of a lion. So let's look at Proverbs 19.12. The king's wrath or anger is as the roaring, and that means a snarling or growling of a lion. But his favor or delight is as dew, as a covering upon the grass, which means green, and it also means to glisten. Okay, now think about kings for a minute. You know, they're not common people so you know their frowns are pretty terrible and you know if they smile you feel comfortable um, and the important thing I think that a king or a queen for that matter would concern them with is if they were to uh, frighten a good person you know they're not going to be doing well uh, and then also they should never give attention to a wicked person uh, with a smile, for example, because then they would be perceived as, uh, you know, abusing their influence over all the people. So let's go back to God here. 
Um, God's displeasure is likened to the growl of a lion. Now think about the, the sound. It's a deep, guttural sound, and it really kind of threatens all the senses. But it is Jesus, our king, who delights with much pleasure to bless his people with full illumination and prophecy, which is the interpretation of the second half of that verse. Okay, now let's just look at another one. This is Joel 3, 16 through 17. The Lord also shall roar. Now here it's rumble or moan out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. <coughs> then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. Okay, so the Lord is speaking from Zion, uh, Jerusalem, and from his throne of glory. And he is speaking and uh, to the wicked and to the terrible ones, it's a roaring as of a mighty lion. But to the righteous, it is a joyful day. Now here's my last one. Hosea chapter 11, verses 9 through 12. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. And I will not enter into the city. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar, again, rumble or moan, like a lion. And here it means in the sense of violence, and we'll elaborate in a minute. When he shall roar, again, rumble or moan, then the children shall tremble from the west. And uh, this means to roar, but it's like a uh, noisy surf, and I'll, I'll elaborate. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria, and I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. Ephraim compasses or covers me about with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah yet ruleth with God, and is faithful with the saints. Okay, so for a roar to rumble, it would mean you hear a deep, long, rolling sound. And, and this is usually how we describe thunder, right? Um, to moan is a low sound used for pain or sorrow. And then the word violence, you know, it can be physical. But you know what? It can also mean a great emotional force. So when the Lord speaks to his own children, they run towards him. But the evil ones shudder with terror. The sound of his voice is likened to the roar of the sea. The waves of the ocean, you know, break on the shoreline with great physical force, resulting in a considerable emotional energy being released from a person. The effect is saints hear the rumble and are invigorated and full of strength. And the evildoers hear the moan, making them powerless and weak and terrified. The Lord Jesus Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah according to his human nature and the root of David according to his divine 
nature. He is the one who bears the office of mediator between God and man. And he is the one that is fit and worthy to open and to execute all the counsels of God towards mankind. All right. Um, in um, this next verse in uh, Revelation chapter 5, um, it's about the seven seals that Jesus is the only one worthy to open. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was worthy, found worthy to open and read the book, and neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou was slain and hath redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Um, the book of Revelation... is really named in part for what it reveals about Christ who betrays the risen Jesus as the only one that is worthy to open the seals. You know, I think it means that Jesus Christ, just an opinion here, is in charge of history and how the world's destiny might unfold. I don't know. <coughs> If we pray to the lion of the tribe of Judah, because he is a lion like no other, you know, Jesus' way of winning is so unusual, so different than our own strategies of winning. He was stripped of his garments, nailed to a cross. He appeared in no way to be like a lion. But what happened three days later? He roared back to life, and he triumphed over death itself. <coughs> this is the God that we worship, the one who wins every victory in surprising ways. He is the lion who watches over us with his fierce, protecting love. So this is our second name, the Lion of Judah. Any thoughts? Yes, that's a good point. All right, let's move on. In the New Testament, the lamb was the principal animal of sacrifice, and two were offered each day. 
one in the morning and one in the evening. The offering was uh, doubled on the Sabbath. Lambs or other animals were also sacrificed on the first day of the new month and on feasts as uh, Passover, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, I knew you'd like that one, and tabernacles. Lambs were also offered in cleansing ceremonies after a woman gave birth and after the healing of a leper. So our next title for God is Lamb or Lamb of God. And you can see I have a lot of references there that I <laughs> did not include because there's many in Revelation. Um, recall from the Old Testament um, that there was a Pascal lamb whose blood was placed on the doorpost to secure safety for the Israelites from the stroke of the destroying angel and the killing of the firstborn. So Christ in the New Testament then is our Passover. But notice in this next scripture here that Jesus Christ, whose great sacrifice was to make atonement for sin, is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The phrase Lamb of God is found only in John's Gospel. <coughs> John verse 1, 29 through 31. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. Uh, Jesus is often referred to as simply the Lamb in the book of Revelation, uh, where he is portrayed as the Lamb who, though he was slain, he yet lives and reigns victorious. So let's look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, meaning to roar, one of the four beasts saying, and here that means Lego, to lay forth systematically, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering, which means, of course, to subdue or overcome. And notice what happens again. And to conquer, again, to subdue or overcome. Now, what I want you to notice first is there is a double issuance of the word conquering, which indicates really an unwavering commitment to what has been entrusted to us in eternity, I think. Um, you know, the lamb here is Jesus, who is the word of God, which is likened to sharp arrows released from the bow. Lord Jesus is not wearing a helmet, but a crown. For his blood has paid in full our redemption from sin. We know that. As Jesus goes forth, he meets with opposition and moves in his own time and ways to prevail and to obtain the victory. shift gears okay um, this last part of chapter 7 which we're going to look at next is a description of the honor and happiness of those who had faithfully served Christ and suffered for him so this is Revelation chapter 7 verses 13 through 17 and one of the elders answered saying unto me what are these which are arrayed in the white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in 
the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne, the thronos of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne, thronos again, shall dwell among them. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, thronos, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Jesus, the Lamb of God, dwells in the middle of the thronos level, which is ultimate in authority and a power, and it's the realm from which all things proceed. Um, the Bible states that the throne of God is so far-reaching and expansive that it encompasses the scope of the heavens. The immensity of a throne that is so vast that it requires the footstool, which is the breath of the earth itself. And we, us, saints, are invited to come boldly to the throne. I find that simply amazing to even contemplate. Oh my gosh. Okay, um, note that these scriptures that I just read are an account of a noble army of martyrs who endured the great tribulation. They are content in their present position before the throne of God and, and their service in the temple. Um, they are happy with their new freedom. And you know, the sense of want has been supplied by the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. All sicknesses and pain are gone as well. These ones have also been delivered from all sorrow where the Father himself has turned it into rejoicing. Now, in this 12th chapter of Revelation, uh, which is next, you know, we have an account of the contest between the church and the Antichrist. Uh, recall the five main power words, uh, some of which we're going to reference in this following passage. So there's Kratos, Iscus, Exusia, Dunamis, and Magus. Okay, let's, we're going to take this real slow. I'm going to break it up. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 11 first. Um, and I heard a loud Magus, or great, voice saying, saying is Lego. We mentioned that earlier, a systematic word of purpose being laid forth in heaven. Okay, now Magus is the controlling influence upon a place. So it could be an archangel speaking in heaven. We don't know. The RK level, which signifies first or beginning and implies original purpose, consists of the archangels. So that would be like Michael and Gabriel. They're examples of the archangels. Um, but let's keep reading. Um, now has come uh, salvation. And strength, here we have dunamis, which is also a power word, which means explosive. Um, it's a force of energy that will determine which kingdom will control the ground. And the kingdom of our God, this is theos, that means supreme divinity, and the power, here's exousia, another power word which means to exercise authority, of his Christ, the anointed one, that's what Christ means, for the accuser of the brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, martyria, a dying to self, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Now this is a triumphant song describing our conquered enemy. 
You know, Satan hates the presence of God. You know what? But he's willing to appear and accuse the people of God. You know, as God's servants overcame Satan, first by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus' powerful and mighty blood subdued the enemy. And then secondly, the word of their testimony, which is an unwavering, powerful teaching or evangelizing of the everlasting word of God, these dedicated ones willingly laid down their lives for the calling of God and did not fear death. So, when praying to the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, how can we thank him for what he has done in laying down his life so that we may live? We worship you, Lord, the great and holy Lamb of God. All right. The fourth title is King of Kings. You know, uh, political disunity is not limited to our era. Think about Jesus. He was born into a highly divisive political environment. And it was into this setting that he began speaking of his kingdom. Jesus performed miracle after miracle after miracle. And you know, each was designed to pull back kind of like a curtain of sorts, revealing God's power over death, disease, and darkness. So in Revelation 17, that you see here on your handout, the Antichrist is described as a whore. And the Apostle John is invited to see this vile woman and what an appearance she made. So war has begun between the beast and his followers and the lamb and his followers. You know, one would think that an army with a lamb at the head of them could not stand before the great red dragon. Let's read it. Revelation 17:14. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of Lords, Kuros, which is supreme in authority, and King of Kings, Basilus, meaning a foundation of power. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. You know, uh, many uh, Christian churches today are called uh, basilicas. Um, and you know, it's a phrase meaning the hall of the king. Victory is gained by the Lamb because his character is that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. All the powers of earth and hell are subject to his control. Now, Revelation 19. Um, let me preface this by saying, you know, Jesus Christ is the glorious head of the church, and he's being called out to a great battle and that is to be fought at Armageddon. So that's what we're referencing here. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth make war and, oh, make judgment and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in white linen, clean, a white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay. The description of our great commander, whose seat and empire resides in heaven, he is sitting on a white horse, 
and he is faithful and true, meaning he is righteous in all his proceedings and has a penetrating insight into the strength of his armies and his enemies. He has a large and extensive dominion signified by the many crowns. His name is the word of God and a name that no one fully knows but he himself. And then his banner of authority or his coat of arms is displayed on his thigh. Wow. All right. Let me see how I'm doing on time. Good. All right, Matthew 6, verses 28 through 33. Now, it doesn't mention here king of kings, but it's re referencing the king of kings' kingdom. So that's why I included this scripture. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You know, the cares of this world are a troubling and disturbing sin to so many Christians. You know, Lord, you taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So today, we commit ourselves recommit ourselves to you, our only king. Help us to join the saints of your kingdom so that together by your spirit we might become useful instruments in your hands. Amen. I am going to make it. Okay, we've arrived at the last title. Let me do some introductory stuff here. Uh, in the last chapter of the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus calls himself the bright and morning star. In ancient times, the morning star was thought of as a herald of the new day, signaling the dawn of hope and joy. The brightest object in the sky after the sun and moon is actually the planet Venus. And this was known since uh, prehistoric times. Um, it is the second planet from the sun, and it's also one of the hottest. Because of its appearance in the eastern sky before dawn, it was thought of as the sign of sunrise. The title bright morning star presents a powerful and beautiful image of the one who is also known as the light of the world. When you call on Jesus, the bright morning star, you are calling on the one from whom all darkness flees. Chapter uh, 22 of Revelation uh, speaks about the river of paradise and the tree of life. So let's read it. Revelation 22, 16 through 17. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is athirst, come. And whosoever will, 
let him take the water of life freely. You know, these words in this scripture are confirmed by the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy in Revelation 19.10. Jesus is the fountain of all light. His saints are this morning light of prophecy to assure them of the light of that perfect day which is fast approaching. All right, Psalm 139, verses 11 and 12. Surely, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. You know, there's no veil that can hide us from God's eye. No mask or disguise can save any person or action from appearing in a true light before God. Isaiah 29, verses 18 through 19. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. I could have underlined all of that. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among, among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So those that are ignorant shall become intelligent. Those that understood not this prophecy shall, when it is accomplished, understand it, and shall acknowledge not only the hand of God in the event, but the voice of God in the prediction of it. Mm. Wow. Um, I apologize, I didn't stick these on my handout either, but this will bring it to a close. Sorry about that, if you got your Bible or your phone. Um, uh, think back with me um, during the miraculous conversion of Saul. Okay? Jesus said to Paul about the Gentiles that he would send him to, and this is in Acts uh, 26.18. I'm going to read it to you. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, which they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. So these ones shall then have divine revelation brought to them, and those that sat in darkness shall see a great light. For the word of God was sent to them to open their eyes. So in closing, um, listen prayerfully to the words of 2 Peter 1.19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. You know, Daystar translates as the word uh, lightbringer or words lightbringer. Jesus is the lightbringer. His light is steadily advancing until one day the darkness will be completely dispelled. Amen? All right, this concludes my teaching. Um, what I want to say is, and you can see it was long, lots of scripture, and I continually, what was amazing about this is I thought it was going to be easy to do. I didn't find it easy. Had to keep cutting back, cutting back, cutting back. Notice here's seven more names of God in the book of Revelation we haven't even referenced. And um, like for example, uh, the first one there, Spirit, you see my three dots at the end? It goes on. I just stopped. I could have done another line, I guess. Uh, we've got word here, 
uh, Son of Man, there's two references in uh, Revelation. We've got Father, there's four, Christ, you can see here. Lord, of course, that's Yahweh. Uh, again, I've got the three dots, so I could have kept going with that one as well. And then number 12, there's just the one for bridegroom in Revelation. I'm speaking of Revelation, not the other books. But um, it would be interesting to, to do it again with the others as well because um, it really enriched me, uh, made me think about a lot of things, um, uh, especially when praying, it, it, when I'm in intercession, supplication. Um, kind of changed my thinking a little bit. Um, I'm going to stop talking and give you all a chance to talk if you want. Uh, maybe what you liked or you just want to make a comment or share a thought. I don't know. Lots of scriptures today. Dennis. Um, like a roaring lion. Oh, yes. Uh, that one was fun. Yeah, and uh, Lion of the Tribe of Judah. Yes. And I don't know why, but it made me think of Gideon. And we saw kind of a glimpse of what this is, Revelation is talking about, I think, in that uh, history with, with Gideon, where when the children of Israel broke the pots, cried with a loud voice, and had the torches. Right. It absolutely terrified the enemy. Oh, yes. To the point, like the roaring lion does, to the point where they ran into each other, they began fighting each other, and they killed each, you know, many of their own in that state of terror, and it emboldened the children of Israel. They, they welcomed the sound and the noise, and uh, they became emboldened, but the enemy was terrified. So, kind of a glimpse as to what Revelation is talking about there. I like that. I think that's very good. Yes. Uh, I'm going to put a little comment about a physical thing. Nobody else has anything spiritual to add. Uh, but uh, I took a trip to uh, Patmos. Oh, yes, yes. Years ago and visited the tomb of John the Baptist. It was yes. very, very interesting. I don't know if y'all have seen it, but when you walk into it, there's a but it got things that looks kind of like a house or a vestibule. You walk through to get to the, because it's really rough walking. Yes. Until you, you get into the tomb. When you get in there, uh, it's just bedrock. Your bedrock's just everywhere, you know. And they had chiseled out a place in the wall, which is very thick, to use like for the desk. And John had a little guy that he that used, he was doing his writing and a place for him to sleep on another ledge like had been dug out in the, in the, in the rock, the stone, and he could sleep too. But the most interesting thing about it was the ceiling. And that, when you look up there, it looks almost like a cross uh, tied bun upside down. Yes, I know what you're talking about. The Trinity. And that's why that, that indicates is the Trinity because there's three, three, three bun-like things, one, two, three, but they're all together, but they're separated by these, these indentations in the stone, which was a natural thing. It wasn't done by, by mankind. Yes. And it, and it kind of made you think of the Holy Trinity and so, on that ceiling. Sure. So if he was sitting there at that rock table and he was looking out, he would see sky? Oh, no. What would he see? It was a dungeon. Oh, so it was very long. It wasn't very long. No, it wasn't, it wasn't very long. Like the size of Scott's office. Ah, so did he have the ability to look out? Okay, he didn't have the ability to look down. Okay. And I'm not sure how if he got his food in there. They didn't really go into the I see, okay. And it had worked on just having the stone there. I don't know. But anyway, I just thought that was wonderful. I loved going there. That. Well, thank you for the description because I kind of had it pictured differently. Yeah. I did in my mind. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Very good. All right. I'm not going to keep you. Um, wow. 10 o'clock. How did I do that? I don't know. 
Well, blessings, everyone. Thank you for being so attentive. Next week. I'm going to turn it off. Uh, next week is Katie Crawford. She's going to be our teacher.